There are 18 million college students. Take the population of New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And now add the state of Utah, and you've about reached the number of people enrolled in college in the U.S. For real. For whatever trends interest you related to college enrollment being on the decline or of less interest to families post-COVID, put that aside for a second and ask yourself, where else in society do 18 million people pay for a service where the one providing it is not required to have training, formal or informal, in the service desired? I'll say that differently. If you send your children to college today, even though chances are good that it will positively affect their financial future, there is a strong likelihood that they will be taught by an expert in the field with minimal educator training. Why is it important? I think that's for you to decide ultimately, but my guests today have some pretty strong feelings that post-secondary educators have the same responsibility to hone the craft they're paid for that, I don't know, say an upholsterer or a camera operator would. After all, we're not paying you, subject matter expert, for your expertise, your previous research, your ideas alone. We're paying for you to share them in a way that improves our, if I'm a student, skills and understanding vis-a-vis the topic area. Kathy Davidson has joined us on No Such Thing in the Past, and for some might need no introduction, but here she is. Hi, I'm Kathy Davidson and co-author with Christina Katapotis of the New College Classroom. I'm the Senior Advisor on Transformation for the Chancellor of the City University of New York and Founding Director of the Futures Initiative. Get more of Kathy's incredible bio in the show notes. She's joined by Christina Katapotis, who I'm thrilled to introduce. I'll actually let her do it. I'm Christina Katapotis. I am with Kathy Davidson, the co-author of The New College Classroom. I'm a postdoctoral research associate of transformative learning and the humanities at CUNY, the City University of New York. Check out show notes for more on Christina. Their book, The New College Classroom, is a lot of things. But the role that I'm most excited for it to play is the one I could have used a few years ago as a first-time adjunct to myself. A guide that works for noobs and veterans of the trade alike. The New College Classroom is not a futuristic, abstract description predicting changes that aren't yet. It's a guide for right now. In a post-pandemic, socially introspective digital age, what do students need from their college educators? We talk more about this in conversation, and I hope you'll go find and dig into the book. Before we get started, I'm not going to ask you the same favor I've asked before. This time, I need you to go back wherever you've downloaded or streamed the show, rate it five stars, and offer a few words of encouragement. Why am I asking for all the stars? Well, they matter a lot to the algorithm, and the algorithm is what's helping people find the show. You'll be shocked to know that I produce this show on a shoestring with my lawn mowing money, and my aspiration is eventually to have it just pay for itself. Your five stars would help me get there. I appreciate you supporting the dream. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Kathy, Christina, thank you so much for joining. I'm really excited about the new book, um, not just because I am... Uh, admittedly a uh, Kathy Davidson fanboy from 
from many, many years back. And obviously, Kathy, you have been on the show in its in its early days. We did a uh, a live interview at at uh, CUNY Symposium years back, uh, and I will link to that in the show notes because I do think that. Um, some of your previous work, there are themes here that are so important um, that are that are I don't want to say updated, but sort of um, framed newly uh, in this book. So the book title is The New College Classroom. And from the title alone, I wasn't sure whether this was going to be a book about like college in the metaverse, um, you know, Jetsons flying cars kind of uh, description or a handbook for one-time adjuncts like me who've had no or just bad experience um, sort of planning and building a, a college classroom. I wanted to have you characterize, Kathy, what this book is um, for folks who see the title but don't know what to expect. Well, I think all of the above and especially the Jetsons, um, <laughs> because we do hope this takes off and is propelled um, and helps to propel faculty to really think about what the classroom means uh, and how it can be uh, uh, almost a trampoline from which students can jump off to future careers, to their communities, um, take the things they learn in the classroom and use those for the rest of their lives. Um, you're right that it is a continuation of some of my previous work. Um, at my previous job, I helped to create the program in cognitive neuroscience. And then when I went back into being a faculty member after being an administrator, I spent a year reading very, very extensively in neuroscience and wrote the first book in what I call the How We Know trilogy, which was called Now You See It, which was about um, the brain science of attention and how we do or don't pay attention and how college the college classroom can take advantage of our ways of paying, playing, paying attention or just dull us into uh, non-learning, which is what happens in too many one-way communication systems where you're, the students are just sitting there hearing people lecture at them and, and thinking that the only point of that is the, is the final exam. Um, then I wrote The New Education, which was about a, a history of how we got here in higher education with some big ideas about what we needed to do to reform ed higher education. And more and more, I kept running into people who said, these are great ideas, I believe you, I just don't know how to do it. I literally don't know how to change my classroom. And um, at that point, I asked Christina Katapotis, who had won many teaching awards and published widely on pedagogy, um, and who had the experience which I had not had in many decades. I'd had it myself when I began my career, but it had been many decades since I'd been an adjunct teaching in New Jersey in the morning and in Brooklyn in the afternoon or in all points in between. And because I didn't want to write a book that was pie in the sky. I wanted a book that took bell hooks, took Freire, took Audre Lorde, took everything we knew about contemporary neuroscience, but said, and this is how you can do it. And if you only have five minutes this will improve how you teach. And I wanted to do that with somebody like Christina, who was urgently new, engaged um, uh, with the classroom in situations that were often highly stressful, um, as well as um, somebody who'd read deeply and thoughtfully in this area. So we had a wonderful, wonderful experience writing this book together. And um, uh, one of our readers called it the installation guide for the new education. And in some ways, I hope that that it is that it really will teach anyone 
how to do these things, not just to think about progressive active learning, but how to actually do it. And um, I think that's where we're most lost when it comes to the classroom. Christina, if you have an experience, anything like mine, um, work in education that is not, uh, you know, not immediately or or always in the classroom and in a subject that people recognize, you have um, the family who approach you at a cocktail party and uh, or a holiday and say, uh, ask you what this book is about. Um, to that person, how do how do you respond when you talk about what this book is about? A family at a cocktail party. I'll take that one. Um, I think that we are so used to learning in a particular way because this is what we were encultured as as students, right? You sit in a seat, you listen to the expert at the front of the room, and you hope that at the end you've had enough of the right answers and remembered enough of the facts and details that you can get an A in a class and move forward because you want to get to the job that you want at the end. And um, that's just not how that didn't excite me as a student. It made me incredibly anxious um, to the point where I would shut down when it came to test taking. Um, And it definitely isn't the model of learning that I wanted when I became an adjunct. And with no training, no one to say, this is how you do it well. This is what to avoid. You just get thrown in there um, into the deep end. And I think one of the most important things about the, the book is it's about asking students and listening to students, trusting students to um, be an active, engaged um student body in the classroom and to put them in the driver's seat. How do we put them in the driver's seat of their own education, give them agency um, so that they can learn? And I think this book is just a reminder that we're in class to learn. And I think we forget that with all of the bureaucratic assessment needs and other things, we kind of forget the goal is learning. And with that comes joy and excitement and creativity and all of these other wonderful things that we show up for community. Um, And I think the book is just about how do we do that? I, Kathy, you mentioned uh, Bell Hooks and Autry Lord. And I will say that in a context where so much of the book is really practical, how to, um, you know, a book about pedagogy, I, maybe I just have the wrong reading list, but um I have yet to find a book, you know, that references bell hooks and and uh, some of the thinkers that often um, I think people think of as kind of like too far from where the rubber meets the road in the classroom. But I think that you two in this book have actually made a case that it's actually not as as distant as it should be. And that's the new of the new college classroom. It is the new. And you're right. I mean, um, Carl Wyman, Nobel Prize winner in physics and professor of education, says that there have now been over 1,000 studies of active learning. And basically the kind of liberatory learning that Prieri and Hooks and Lord talk about are active learning, Hmm. how you can... Um, actually take control 
of your own learning, have an individual and autonomous role in that. And the professor scaffolds and supports you towards a kind of learning, which is how we learn outside the classroom, mm. right? We common sense as well as a thousand studies um, are there to show us that when we really need to learn something on our own, we don't listen to a lecture. We might, we might get started that way, but we do it by practicing it. Uh, sometimes we don't do everything right. We practice it again. We try a different method. Um, we try it out. We try to apply it in a situation. Maybe we tell a friend about it. That's active learning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and the biggest difference is instead of it being top down uh, uh, and somebody just trying to fill our heads with the facts that they have already mastered, it's about giving you as a student, the tools to mastery for yourself, the tools to do, to execute something well and carefully um, uh, and apply it in different situations. Yeah. Um, and we know that common sense tells us that in the, in the famous study in the publications of the National Academy of Science, which is a meta study of 250 separate studies of active learning, the authors kind of in frustration at the end say, if this had been a pharmaceutical study, traditional learning would be taken off the market. Mm. Um, we don't need evidence anymore. But we've been so conditioned by late 19th century Taylorist ideas of output and sco test scores that we've used those as a proxy and a really bad, weak proxy for actual learning. And again, when any of us has to teach a child something or learn something ourselves when we're not in a formal education system, we break all the rules of formal edu education. You don't give a standardized test to a, a three-year-old for how many new words they've learned or what problems they've solved or how well they're learning to climb the stairs or be potty trained. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that doesn't work. And it doesn't work for ourselves either when we have to learn something new, whether it's a tennis game or a new job with a whole new set of cultural rules that nobody ever spells out for us. But somehow we have to learn what those rules are or we're going to get fired. Yeah. So it's a very, it's both the loftiest theory of learning and uh, as liberatory, and it's the most practical, useful, and proven. But we we typically don't know how to do it. So that's what this book is: is to tell you this is how you can do it, and it's not so hard. I think practical is the word that, as I describe this book to other colleagues and and recommend to them that they get into it, that word comes up a lot. A lot of what you suggest in the pages remind me of in in design what we think of you as user centered approaches, huh? and um, I wonder to what extent the the transformations recommended in the book feel adjacent to that, to you all, and or or totally inspired by it, possibly. I'm thinking of Bruce Mao and um, this uh, beautiful manifesto activity that uh, Kathy and our faculty co-director, Shelley Eversley at um, Transformative Learning and the Humanities did with our fellows. These fellows are from all different campuses across CUNY. And um, it's basically just Mao is, an, is a designer. And in thinking about creating something new, um, he invites people to write a three-minute manifesto of what they want to do um, in their lives. And Kathy can say more about this. But I think that that is the idea, right? Like I said at the beginning, instead of being a student in the seat, looking at and listening to an expert at the front of the room, a user-centered approach or a student-centered approach to designing something new like the new classroom is asking students saying, 
you're the expert. Hmm. And as a learner, I feel completely different if I'm told at the beginning of a class that I have expertise to add. It's like, oh, my brain is awake. Mm. I am ready. Like I am on alert now because I'm on the hook here. I have to say what I want to do. Then I have to engage. Um, so Kathy can say more about this um, manifesto activity. Yeah, the cool thing about the manifesto activity is, he, is Bruce Mellon gives you three minutes to say what you want to do with your life. Mm. And he says, actually, everybody knows they just never get asked. I mean, that's kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. But um, it, your connection to user-centered approaches, I mean, you know, having been one of the co-founders of Haystack, Humanities, Arts, Science and Technology Alliance and Collaboratory um, back in 2002, that was one of our objectives was here was this new tool, this new thing called the Internet that could allow anyone to contribute ideas without an editor without a uh, publisher, without a central force deciding what does or doesn't count as knowledge and inviting everybody to participate together. That only works. It's a user-centered technology that only works if you have the platform that supports that technology. And another way to think about the new college classroom is we're helping faculty to have instructors to have a platform by which they can be as creative with their students as possible. Mm. Tell someone be creative and it can paralyze them, though. I mean, so we we start people off with very simple and yet time tested techniques. Um, Christina calls them um, grab and go activities or um, things to have in your hip pocket at all times. So so that if you're a busy adjunct and you only have five minutes, uh, there's something for you in five minutes. And I know that either one of us would be happy to talk about think, pair, share, our uh, go-to activity and everything we do. I don't think I've ever given a talk in the last 20 years where I haven't included one audience think, pair, share technique. Yeah, I do. I actually do want to have you describe um, some of those practical activities. Before I do, though, I want to segue from the the user-centered question. I want to talk about these users, right? I I feel like, boy, I I feel like especially in this kind of, I'm going to call it post-pandemic, maybe somewhat aspirationally, but, but, (laughs) um, you know, there, there is such a conversation about the post-secondary space right now. And I feel like it's caused this, um, this uh, kind of dirty renaissance of language, like these students, like these, you know, students these days, kind of, kind of language that that you know that throws young people and and adults who are um, who are in the post secondary space into this bucket, um, and it keeps us from building the right kind of understanding around back to that word practical practical thinking about how we enrich these spaces in ways that are that are that meet the user where they are um so i do want to spend a second talking about students these days and let's just define for a second um you know who is the post secondary student what student is the educator teaching who's going to get the most from this book? Gail Mello, who is the president emerita of um, LaGuardia Community College, wrote a piece in the New York Times um, a few years ago, right before the pandemic. 
And what she asked the question, who are your students? And if uh, I'll just read you her list. This is, I'm borrowing this from her. Eight, there are un- 18 million undergraduates in the United States. 40% uh, go to, com- it's actually over 40% now go to community college. 40% work 30 hours a week. 25% work full-time and go to school full-time at the same time. That's like heroic. Um, 25% are over 25 years of age. 30% are first-generation college students. 24% are low-income. 25% face some food or housing insecurity in the previous year. 58% are female. 45% are students of color. 0.4% of students go to the Ivies. And I swear most stuff written about higher education mm-hmm. are based uh, are based on that point four percent the stereotypical i love fraternities i love sororities <laughs> i only go to basketball games i live on a campus i've never worked a day in my life i'm lazy i cheat i do anything i can to get through i don't really care about education it's such a it, it it's infuriating that it's such an insulting view of students when the typical student today works so hard for their education. And I think a lot of the tripe about how education doesn't matter is partly a way of really cynical way of demoralizing Mm. students so they don't go to college when in fact every metric we have shows that a college education is the single best investment anyone can make in their future at Mm. any income level in any one of those statistics. If you want to say what's a good return on my investment, go to college. It makes every difference in the world for the rest of your life. And since it does, we have to do better. That's a two-part thing. Yes, it makes a difference. And two, we can do lots, lots better in what we offer students who do go to college. Christina, do you want to follow that up? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, people who say things like students these days, um, you know, or who might group students into like this large category of like all 18 million, right. As if they were the same, mm-hmm. I think maybe, you know, if you've had that thought, you haven't had the student come up to you and say in the middle of finals week, my building caught on fire, my entire apartment is soaked in the water damage. And we have all of these fans going I really just can't focus right now. Could Mm. I submit this assignment late? Um, Or the student who says um, in the middle of midterms, my family just got evicted from our apartment. We're sleeping on aunts and uncles couches right now. I need more time. Um, Or my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, maybe you had a student who said like, or maybe you aren't teaching if you're saying students these days. Um, But, you know, (laughs) maybe, um, you know, you've had a student who said I'm sick and not given you the the kind of detail like that. Uh, But I think, you know, when you really connect with your students and they trust you and they believe you when you say, you know, tell me. Uh, what's going on. Let me know how I can help you. Let me know if an extension would make a difference and how I can help you succeed in this class. When you're a partner, a co-learner in the classroom, it makes a difference. And my students have told me those things, you know, like they, they trusted me and shared those things with me. And um, even when a student just very vaguely says, 
I couldn't come to class today or I didn't do the reading today. I trust that maybe that student is mentally overloaded because, Mm. oh my gosh, they're doing a million things at once, right? Just like in the pandemic, um, you know, some students dialed in from a shift at work that they could pick up or they were babysitting and I could hear kids in the background because mom or dad needed to pick up an extra shift at work. And I trust them to tell me, you know, I needed more time for some reason, and it is probably a good reason because they're very, very busy. They have a lot of obligations. And, you know, I I had one student who fell asleep in my class almost every time. And I just kind of quietly said to myself, like, I wish this person could just stay awake. Mm. Um, a year later, I ended up in the ER overnight um, for a migraine. And this student was working the night shift at that hospital just up the street from our campus and came in to check on me and said, Professor, are you okay? Um, And I was like, I had no idea you were working a night shift at a hospital up the street. Why didn't you tell me that that's why you kept falling asleep in class, you poor thing. You must have been exhausted. Like, I wish I had known so I could have been um, a better support to that student, you know? Hmm. And um, so, yeah. Uh, those, those are students who have gone on to succeed in so many ways who have graduated and gotten their dream jobs or gotten into graduate school. And it's just amazing what they are capable of, um, in addition to all of the other obligations that they have. So those are what I would say are students these days are just Mm. these remarkable multitaskers who are just heroes in their everyday lives in addition to taking this class and reading you know a a short story by Edgar Allan Poe or an Audre Lorde poem with me Mm. one of the things that you're making me think about is anytime I have guests on who are working in the post-secondary space I always ask them so what what do we say when parents approach me and they ask because I still do have families who will approach me and say, you know, is college still the answer? And sure, when you look at the data, um, you know, a a yes answer holds up. But part of me, as I'm talking to you two, makes me also think that that the right response to that question, and I'm, I'm testing this on the two of you, but it feels like the right response to that question is, who who is your child first of all absolutely and um and what do they need what kind of environment do they need to get the most out of this next step not so much yes or no because that feels like the most important question for family or individuals who are are sending themselves to college is is not so much a yes or no but to add that dimension that the book talks so much about i think the and I'm going to answer this while not revealing anything about family members, but I have two family, young family members struggling with this right now. On the one hand, I believe 100% that we have to know who our children are, and college is not for every child. On the other hand, seeing the dead-end, horrible jobs that these young people have had to face because they have no college degree and have no training – makes me realize this is not just an individual situation, it's a social situation. Mm. The rare student who doesn't go to college and then found, drops out of college and founds Facebook 
probably did that because they went to a prep school their whole whole life. And, oh, I almost did it. <laughs> they went to prep school their whole life and have parents that are able to finance them and know how to talk the elite language of their field in such a way that they can convince people they have a college-like mm. degree and college-like experiences even when they don't, right? So I don't – I mean, I, I had the I know that Bill Gates, from the time he was 10, um, worked with Ed Lazowska at University of Washington. And although he dropped out of Harvard, he'd had the equivalent of a Harvard degree from the time he was 10 because one professor, computer science professor, took an interest in him. His father was also a very beloved, beloved, Bill Gates Sr. was so beloved in the city of Seattle, lawyer. Um, um, and so he had those privileges going into a situation and had a special tutor who was one of the most important computer scientists of his day. So saying he dropped out of college and look, he's a, mm. the, one of the richest men in the world, is, is, it's a myth. And it's a myth, sadly, that can be devastating to young people who believe it. Yeah. Right. Even if so, even if you hate college, there's a still the issue of what is the world you're going into beyond college? How welcoming is that world? What is the standard of living? What is the aspiration you have for your life beyond college? Um, maybe maybe you don't. Maybe your aspiration is such that you don't need a college education. But if you think the world is going to welcome you into an occupation that makes you rise every morning and say, wow, I'm so glad I'm doing this. Yeah. Um, you probably have a different thing, a different world waiting for you than the one you're fantasizing. And it's probably not the Mark Zuckerberg, um, Bill Gates world, um, but a very, very different one that's all too ready. I'm sorry about feeling so indignant, but this is really close to my heart. The world is all too, the world of those people who didn't go to college is all too ready to exploit the world of our CUNY students who are being told, oh, you don't need to have a college degree. Right. Yeah. right? I mean, computers, my, my uh, passionate field on computer programming, it's got one of the highest burnout rates um, and one of the highest glass ceilings, lowest glass ceilings of any occupation. Yeah. Right? You don't need a college degree to be a programmer, to get beyond being a programmer. And at a horrible gig economy programmer, takes, it's not easy. It is not easy. Yeah. So um, that's important, and I think it's important for a lot of people to hear and not only uh, hear but continue to explore for themselves and their families and, you know, whomever they're asking this question for. Um, I want to come back to the classroom and um, do some of that ex exploration of some of these practical kind of how-to bits. The first thing I want to ask is for one of you just to describe for a second. My favorite phrase I think I've read in a book uh, in a while is silence chicken, which I don't know who we can attribute that to. <laughs> but um, tell us about silence chicken and how it relates to the new college classroom. Kathy taught me that. So, Kathy. Uh, one of my students calls it. It's this horrible thing. And Christina has great experience um, breaking through silent chicken where the teacher asks a question and students sit there 
desperate for some other student to please answer the question because it's getting tenser and tenser and and someone's got to break it and it's it's that it was one of my students who taught me about silence chicken it's perfect right i mean it's really really brilliant it at first christina was in a situation where she got to be the student who broke the silence chicken yeah oh yeah i forgot (laughs) yeah um that was a department meeting um where i was a graduate student and um we were uh, given the hefty task of trying to um, envision our department goals for the next 10 years. And, um, you know, I've since in um, interviews asked people what their department goals are for just the next five years. I thought, okay, let's make it a little bit more uh, practical. And oh my gosh, the groans, I felt awful for asking that question. And, but, you know, we were given this task um, and no one wanted to speak up. Everyone had probably a million things that they wanted to complain about, but no one could think of, you know, this, (laughs) what would we like to, you know, do and envision. And um, so I raised my hand and I was just like, could we just have maybe two, three minutes to talk to someone next to us about about what we could imagine for the next 10 years or maybe the next year. Um, and we had a department chair who uh, was really uh, generous with students and open to hearing this grad student out and gave us an opportunity to basically do a think pair share. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone in the room was talking and it took a long time for him to get our attention back. Um, and then everyone was willing to say our group said this rather than like, I think, you know, it it was a little too much pressure to um, tackle that big question head on one on one. And it was much easier if we could just talk about what our group said. So, yeah. Think pair share is a great example. I actually want to have you describe another activity from the book, but think pair share is a great one. If you're looking to, um, uh, to, move your classroom from silence chicken to the high class problem of having to get people back, you know, back to the center of the room. Um, It took me a long time as a facilitator of trainings and things like that to realize how good a problem that is. And Mm -hmm. it even came up when I was at the book launch and Kathy, you kind of made a joke of it, but folks were think pair sharing and it took you, you know, seven times to ask can you please come back to the room? Um, what a what a nice problem to have. I know. And I, I actually love to do that. And I love to say, we won. You know, if people are so compelled by the conversation about ideas that they don't want to pay attention to the person in front of the room, that's a that's like learning, right? That's the victory. Yep. And I feel badly for everyone who's taught a class next to mine at 8 a.m. because <laughs> and I feel really badly because I do think pair share, you know, you give students a question, you ask them to get into pairs, uh, or you ask them to write down their thoughts first. That's the think part. Then they get into pairs with someone next to them. Um, and they talk about what they wrote down. And then there's the opportunity at the end for everyone to share uh, with a larger group if they want to volunteer uh, what they talked about. But when they're in those pairs together talking, I have um, actually had a professor come into my room and ask our class to quiet down because we were being too loud 
at 8 a.m. And so um, I feel badly for the people in the rooms next to me because we are a very rowdy bunch in, at <laughs> first thing in the morning. Uh, it's a great, it's a great, uh, imagine, uh, I, I would gladly fend off the next door neighbor who, um, who doesn't want to listen to the chatter. Can you, so, um, the activity I was hoping, Christina, you would describe a little bit as the, we, the people activity, um, coming back to, so getting maybe a little bit more, uh, so, so maybe this is more like intermediate to expert level, um, after once you've mastered think pair share, we, the people feels like a step towards, uh, bell hooks and, uh, once you're, you're, you're sort of ready, but tell us about the activity. And, and I think it's characteristic of a lot of, um, my, you know, questions I have after that. Thank you so much, um, for asking about that. It's one of my favorites. Um, I, I use it to uh, teach my early American literature survey class, but um, it's in the book in this section about um, creating a class constitution or co-creating a class with students, because if you're going to create like a class constitution or like class rules, it's good to be critically reflective of like the constitution itself. Um, and there's some other examples in the book about this. Um, but uh, basically, we start with everyone in the room standing up, and I stand up as well. Um, and I say, if you do not identify as male, please sit down. Um, and at this point, um, I am sitting down with approximately half the class. And for those um, you know, who are listening in who haven't seen me, I am a white cis woman. Um, and so I am sitting down in the first excluded group, um, the first we and um, we the people who would not be included in the constitution um, as it was being drafted. Um, so then next I, I say, you know, if you rent or do not own your house, apartment or wherever you live, please sit down. And in New York City, where I taught this course, <laughs> um, most students rent apartments. So by this time, only a few, if any, are ever left standing. Um, and so finally, I say, if you have any student loans, any credit card debt, any debt whatsoever, please sit down. Um, because if you had debt, you you um, wouldn't have been included in We the People. Um, and so given the extraordinary cost of college in the U.S., um, there is never a student left standing um, at the end. Um, nor in 1789 would they have been considered deserving of the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which is just tragic. And this irony is not lost on students that to go to college, they must accrue debt, a condition that would have prevented them from being considered citizens um, with voting rights in the original um, constitution. So um, I, I think it's really important that when we do things like this, um, that these are done intentionally. So um, I, as a white instructor, include myself um, in that first excluded group because I want to start with exclusion more generally um, and ensure that I'm there with them. Um, and once we're all sitting down, it seems like the right time to talk about race and the most heated common ways of talking about elitism and privilege and exclusion and inclusion and citizenship and the three-fifths status of enslaved people who... Um, 
would not have been considered um, part of We the People either. And so students, um, you know, immediately note that enslaved people couldn't vote anywhere while um, free black men could vote in only four northern states. A quick Internet search will inevitably turn up that indigenous people were prohibited from voting until 1924. Um, and there's this weird factoid um, that Kathy reminded me of um, that in New Jersey, women could vote until 1807, and then they had voting privileges retracted until 1919 um, with the passage of the 19th Amendment. So it, it brings up all of these other conversations so we can critically reflect on who is included in me, the people who are we um, including in the we, the people of our class? And that leads to discussions of like, how can we make our syllabus and our classroom community inclusive of every person, of every learner, of every learner type? Like um, we add more or options to our syllabi to make it radically inclusive, accessible to everyone. And it just kind of raises the bar of inclusion to really be thoughtful of who is sitting next to us in the classroom. Are they part of this community? Do they feel like they belong? Because it's my job as a citizen of this classroom to ensure that everyone feels that they belong here. It's so, um, it's so important. Uh, I think a lot of people never realize, uh, in part because they may never have a, a professor or a teacher in their lives who points out that the, the, the frame that we've, within which we've learned our whole lives has a power structure. And mm-hmm. oftentimes that power structure mirrors an institutional power structure in our country that does not work. Uh, for many, most, any, depending on your perspective, right? Um, and it just feels so, so important what what you describe in that activity as a, a sort of restructuring of uh, the power in a classroom and, and what the purpose, you know, it, until you've done that, I don't think a lot of learners can realize the, the purpose, you know, their purpose as an individual there and through the subject matter and... Um, I just want to point out because uh, it feels very important. I think a lot of educators, post-secondary educators, but but anybody really are going to be relieved to have a chapter full of advice like you do in chapter seven, which focuses on democratic and anti-racist pedagogy. Um, I wonder when you set out to write the book, did you always know that you wanted that to be there or was that, did that? Or sort of emerge out of the last mm. couple of years and everything that has been happening in the world? Um, I think we thought it was part of the bread and butter of active learning itself because we had taken so much from progressive educators. And when um, Kathy and I began working together, um, the theme was, right, that you can't Kathy has said this in her talks um, and in the new education. You, but you, you can't cannot... change structural inequality with goodwill. Mm. You Thank have you. to create new structures with equality at the core. You have to real, otherwise you replicate 
uh, inequality over and over again, no matter what your platitudes are about how much you care uh, about changing the situation. You have to really look at the structural conditions and think about what you can change about the structural conditions to ensure equality, because most of the structural conditions are set up to ensure inequality. Mm. I mean, they're not fair. That's how that's, you don't be Karl Marx. That's capitalism 101, right? It's a pyramid. And if you're going to have somebody at the top in the pyramid that's called capitalism, you have to have people at the bottom. And partly what the structures do is structure who's going to fit where in that pyramid. And if you want to turn it upside down or even better, make a circle or something more fluid, you have to think about the structures that support or, in fact, that are designed. And this is the important part, are designed to inhibit you. I mean, universal public education was a miracle in many ways. And it was also very, very explicitly designed to train farmers who had made lots of decisions on their own how to be factory workers. Hmm. And the higher education, when it was redesigned in the end of the 19th century, was redesigned to make a professional managerial class that knew how to regulate those factory workers on every level all the way up. That's a structure. If you're going to break the structure and break the inequality that's baked into that structure, you have to come up with new structures. So if the new college classroom is anything, it's a new structure that supports greater equality in every classroom. And uh, while taking into account that the adjunct professors traveling all over is hardly the the top of the heap um, in that structure. They may seem like the top of the heap to the student who's getting a grade from them, but they're hardly the top top of the heap. So we really, one of the reasons we were so attentive, and Christina did such a brilliant job of this throughout, so attentive to how long it's going to take to redo my classroom, redo this exercise, was partly because we really believe you can't change structural inequality with goodwill. You have to create new structures for the professor as well as for the students in the class. I know. I, I think that like that is baked into the activities that take two minutes, like a listening dyad or a think pair share, which could take up to five minutes or co-creating a class together, which is a full semester endeavor. And so I think the, the anti-racist and democratic pedagogies are baked into everything. But that chapter in particular does this deeper dive people who are really ready to take these things head on um, and go deeper. What we didn't know when we wrote that chapter was that there would be this heinous new McCarthyism throughout America where some classrooms now aren't allowed to have pictures of Martin Luther King in them because that's considered critical race theory. I mean, we should be there should be millions of people marching in the streets right now about the kind of book banning that's happening. Um, yay, Brooklyn Public Library, which has QR codes so anyone in the country can take out books that have been banned in their states. Mm. Uh, and they're getting thousands and thousands of requests from from even little kids. I mean, young people who just want to read books that are good books about Martin Luther King. I mean, that should not be a banned topic. That's her- That's horrific. So I think that chapter was always intrinsically part of our idea about structuring equality in the classroom, but it has a much greater urgency in the world that we've entered in the, la- in the last year or so. So we're asking professors to take a lot of risks in the new college classroom. and uh, I actually don't agree with that. Tell, tell me. Ah, I, because one of the things we do in every chapter is say, 
If you're in a situation and if you're in a panopticon where it feels risky, here's an unrisky way of doing it. And here's the research that you can give to those people who think that you're not doing a good job that will say to them, no, 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 no. I know the research and the research supports me in saying this is the best way, not the most radical, not the most uh, egalitarian, that too, but that doesn't, that's usually, no one ever criticizes you for that. I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is this is the best, most effective learning I can give our students. And we give people, we want people to feel, again, structural equality needs a new structure. So we're offering faculty exactly what they need to be able to do these things in the most risk-free way possible. And we're very careful to say, don't, don't, you don't want you to get fired. That doesn't help change inequality. Mm. Um, here are things that protect you, that show that you're doing the right thing. And it's really helpful that we have a Nobel Prize winner in physics who's your biggest advocate and that you can quote. He's written a whole book about it with a lot of data and a lot of graphs. And you can quote him anytime you need to. Yeah. It makes me think of um, in chapter four, uh, you you hearken uh, Tony Morrison and this this quote, um, they went to work and you sort of talk a little bit about what it means to go to work or get to work in this, uh, you know, certainly post pandemic world, but but just as an educator today. And it feels like in part what you're saying is that this is what it means to get to work is um, that these aren't uh, these aren't career threatening they're certainly not more career threatening risks than uh, than getting into the classroom and uh, not abiding by the charters and missions of the university that you work for. This is what it means to get to work and I think what you argue in the book is that everyone needs to be armed with a a book like the new college classroom to help make the case and help people understand why this is so critical. I think uh, Christina will agree with this. Nothing would make me happier than having faculty say, because of this book, my teaching got a little easier and got a lot better. Mm. So it's not only doing work, but working effectively, not doing more with less. I hate that logic. Um, But actually learning methods that make sense I think actually most of the methods that we've been taught don't make sense. We know that. Again, common sense says that those things aren't the real way to learn and that are sensible, satisfying, joyous, and inspiring for the teacher as well as the student. And we've got a bibliography there that can support you in what you're doing. So you don't get in trouble. You don't get fired. But maybe even win a teaching award for it. Yeah. I want to land, I know we're running out of time, and I just want to land in a place to to ask you both. So no such thing is all about learning in the digital age. And I, I want to land on a question about the technology, because I think that there are a lot of folks who think about um, who think about a college education and think that, well, uh, in the context of enrollment that's been declining for a very long time now, um, that the solutions are about these like, you know, we I'll go back to the sort of Jetsons-esque flying car of the college classroom, the uh, multi-touch sensory tables in the middle of the, you know, whatever it is, uh, it looks more like the minority report than it does a typical classroom um, at, at CUNY. So I wanted to ask the two of you just to respond to that a little bit. Um, is the new college classroom 
Uh, is it some version of, you know, is that out there, the minor, minority report classroom? Or does the, the college classroom of the future look a lot like it always has, but with the kind of methods you talk about in the book? Well, you can do a terrible job teaching on Zoom and you can do a terrible job teaching face to face. Um, one of the things that we say throughout the book is if you use these methods for interactivity and active learning online, you better be using them face to face, too. We don't want you to return to the college classroom and go back to an even more bankrupt way of teaching. Mm. Um, I all, But it doesn't need all the bells and whistles, it, you know, it, but on the same token, um, online education has been various forms of distance education have been around since at least the 18th century. And some people would say since medieval times, we now have a inex relatively inexpensive way of delivering that to people, but it has to be good interactive, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, good interactive learning. I should mention that Christina and I wrote this book during the pandemic. We met online on zoom every Tuesday and Thursday and wrote together and I don't think we even saw each other face to face again until the book was already in press. Is that right? Yeah, no, it was. Um, we didn't see each other face to face until this past year. Um, uh, the last time we had met face to face was February 2020. And Christina's program, the Transformative Learning and the Humanities, is an online program that teaches people how to do active learning. Yeah. And that trains faculty, helps faculty co-peer, teach each other, and learn from each other and how to do face-to-face. -face. Great. So I was really excited to read mention of peer badging in the book, um, which, you know, in the world of digital credentials, which is actually how you and I met, Kathy, um, that is always an area that I have felt strongly is a game changer in in the sense that it it helps us potentially revalue the importance of peer-to-peer -peer learning um, in the, the digital age. I wanted to ask you whether you're seeing more practical and authentic examples of not just in the, the context of digital credentials, but um, peer learning generally, are you seeing new and, and better examples of how that gets appreciated in, in the new uh, era? I mean, one of the things that's been, um, that was happening as we were writing this book was the incredible popularity of something um, that Susan Bloom calls uh, ungrading, which is a whole range of different alternative assessment methods, which sometimes replace and sometimes supplement the normal output grading forms of learning. Mm. But uh, where people all over and far more than we thought are sick of grading and um, sick of thinking that you can reduce learning to grades and come up with students ways that students can be involved in their own formative assessment. And one of the ones that I've found and used successfully in the past is peer badging, where I actually um, will have students work on a project together in a group. But um, students usually groan. Um, I think we call it, there's a chapter called group work without the groan. Mm -hmm. Students groan at group work because we usually put four people together and say, do it. And, yeah. and there is nothing in industry that people spend more money on than management training for group and collaborative work. It's yep. incredibly difficult. And why you'd think students would know how to do this on their own is beyond me. But nonetheless, 
what I like to do is I have people in groups and I have the students in the group write a job description for each member of the group and then write a list of what are essentially peer badges in every quality. It might be dependability. It might be creativity. It might be design work. It might be sense of humor. It might be ability to get a, get the job done to say, I don't care how if we have 72 ideas, uh, we have to deliver this by midnight. So we're only going to do five ideas. I'm like, and this is the ones we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things. And then what I like to do is have students give each other badges in each of those areas. You ne- the, the brilliance to me of peer badging, which I learned from open source computer organizers, is you never give somebody a failing grade. Mm. You only award a badge to somebody who's earned it. But how smart do you have to be to look at the badges that you've received and say, whoa, no one in my group thought I was contributing to getting to project completion. I, no one gave me a badge in that. I better work on that. Mm. But instead of it being punitive, it's formative. It says, we know you're doing great and we couldn't do this project without you, if you um, without these four things. And you just didn't contribute in the other eight things. So yeah. then it's up to you to decide whether you want to contribute or not. It's so much more complex a way of telling students that learning is multifaceted, complicated, that we all need to be involved because if we're going to be learning, we need to, we need to be learning from each other. I love to say that everybody learns from everybody learning. I love that. that. Um, if one person is slower at catching on to something and you have to explain to them what a gift to the people who already know how to do it because you're learning how to explain, et cetera. There's some person on, on um, Twitter who loves to put up really, he's a math teacher, loves to put up really, really simple math questions. Like how do you have, how do you find the sum of 43 plus 72? Mm-hmm. Simple addition. And then he asks people to, to explain how they do it. Mm. There'll be like a hundred different ways of how people add 43 plus 72. Who knew? You know, and when you're when everybody's learning from everybody learning, you learn not just the content, but the complex, wonderful ways we all learn and how we can help each other in that project. To me, that's the new college classroom. If everybody learns from everybody learnings. We have an amazing higher education and the beginnings of a more equitable, successful, efficient, better society. Bottom line. I can't think of a better way uh, to end this conversation, but I do hope we get to uh, continue to touch base and hear more examples of ways that folks are putting uh, the new college classroom into practice. Kathy and Christina, I can't thank you enough for spending time. Is there anything that you want to plug that we haven't yet. Yes. I want to park plug Mark Lesser because yeah. you are the epitome <laughs> of people learning together. And I can't tell you how much uh, Christina and I uh, appreciate what you're doing um, to prepare for this program today. We listened to some previous shows and learned so much from you. So thank you for all you do. And thank you to your listeners for taking the time and caring enough to listen. It means so much to me, Kathy, to hear that from you. And uh, wonderful to meet you, Christina. And uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. 
Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.